This is Nate Hansen. And Tim Ritter. We are almost heretical. There are very clear connections between what people in the pews hear and believe about Christianity that end up leading to black men in America being incarcerated at rates far higher than white men. Most people don't think there is such a connection. And I think the case we're wanting to make is say there is a connection. And what that means is we certainly have a responsibility to figure out what that is. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Okay, we're back and still almost heretical. I recently had the chance to have a conversation with Mark Charles, but Nate couldn't be with us. So what I wanted to do was call Nate and get his first take and kind of his immediate gut response after listening to that conversation. So, Nate, you just listened to it, didn't you? I did. I just finished it uh, an hour ago. Okay, so first reflections, like, uh, what are you feeling? Hmm. Yeah, it's weird. It's like, it feels like I want to like do something and I want to fix the problem, um, but I don't know. I don't know what to do, and I feel like everyone wants to do that, and we just keep making more problems. But I feel like a lot of people's first reaction to something like that is going to be one of like, and he even said it like pretty defensive. Um, and I, I think he, he talked about that as kind of a coping mechanism for trauma, um, being the one that's inflicted this oppression. It's a different type of trauma, and that being one of the kind of the mechanisms that they use is to like almost get frustrated and angry and and kind of deny. So I, it's just like this weird, like, I want to fix it. And I also know that, like, having people listen to Mark and, like, saying, hey, go check this out. It's going to really open your eyes. It, it might not. It might just be, like, silenced and kind of, like, pushed aside. So I'm in this weird, like, space, I guess. Yeah, totally. Uh, after I did the interview, I was so tired, like, exhausted. Yeah. And, uh, and maybe part of that is, you know, still learning to interview and trying to honor Mark in the process and, you know ask the right questions, all that, that stuff. But I think it was more just like from how tragic the content is and his content. I've, you know, I've listened to his, uh, his teachings on doctrine of discovery and, uh, kind of followed his more recent work on Abraham Lincoln, stuff like that. So I like, I knew what he's going to say and yet just sitting with it all again, especially getting to talk to him, you know, live face to face pushed me to my emotional capacities that I just had to go down to the end of the street and sit in a chair and look at the mountains for like 45 minutes. And like I had stuff to do, but I just like couldn't, couldn't really operate for a little bit. Yeah. I vacuumed my car. (laughs) Yeah. Did it help? Uh, no. Um, (laughs) especially because I did that with Lucy. So I had her like wrote, hold on water, water, water draining in the garage. I am in a garage. <laughs> um, but she was in the car with me. So I, I was like moving her or having her move from seat to seat as I was vacuuming. But so I didn't really get like a lot of chance to like think. So this is really kind of just fresh. I'm just, I'm just riffing off of um, the thoughts that are kind of coming into my head. So this is going to be a pretty raw open episode here. Not, uh, <laughs> not scripted or we don't like have a place for going with this necessarily. We're just kind of talking. Um, it was pretty heavy um, and like I said, like you, you knew what he was going to say. Um, I feel like I knew some of that stuff. Like I definitely haven't been in a, a mode of like Abraham Lincoln's the man, you know, I, I'm pretty skeptical of all of the founders and early leaders of the country mm-hmm. and current leaders of the country. <laughs> um, but still, like it's still like it hits hard because it seems like there's nothing we can do. We can't go back and fix this. And I think that's sort of where I've been my whole life is like, I know this was terrible and we can't go back and fix it. I guess where I want to like focus my energies now is exposing how the ramifications of 
these decisions by people a long time ago that I didn't make are still impacting us today and how we're still actually oftentimes making similar decisions um, that are oppressing people just as much. Um, I kind of want to focus my energies there. And then the other piece, and he mentioned it, but he didn't really get into it, talking about how um, I think it's actually, it was in the book he's writing. That's what it was. He's talked about how like he wants to talk about the theology that led to all of this because I have a hunch that we're holding on to that same theology today. Yeah. Even if we're not doing the same things with it, we're still holding that same theology. And it's like we've talked about before, do we need to look at that theology and see what it's capable of? Uh, and, and are we responsible for what it's capable of and what it has been capable of in the past? Yeah, I agree. But it's what I just shared is basically listen to Mark for an hour, hour and 10 minutes, just telling truth about our history. And it's so tragic and there's so much evil. And because it's so far back in history, the beginnings of this, and because it's so much of our history, you know, egregious things happening over hundreds of years, and it's so embedded, There, there's this despair that we could never fix this, right? Like, it's right. not like, you know, when I tell Camden, you know, he spilled the milk and I ask him to clean it up. Like, that's not an option here. And, uh, and so I think that leads to that trauma response, like I was sharing, where it basically just made me shut down, like emotionally didn't have capacity to... Uh, to really do much without just sitting with it and feeling the the grief of that. And, um, and that's something I want to touch on is, is Mark's, uh, reference to trauma and his bridging sociological and, and psychological ideas of trauma with, uh, with talking about racism and, and our history. But it, I agree that that's where my passion has been for a while now of trying to see, you know, it's not just like the blame game of like who has terrible ancestors, right? But like really is it to me a a theological project of figuring out what are the ideas that whether intentionally or unintentionally were used to propagate some of these evils like genocide, slavery, dehumanization of people of color. And I think largely the story is that it was an intentional move. Regardless of that, where are those ideas still working today, Yeah. right? And so that's not a matter of pointing fingers at a person. It's a matter of, of doing the best we can to move forward without, you know, repeating the mistakes of the past or, or letting the atrocities of the past still reign today, basically letting the white supremacy still be, you know, the operative idea. But it it so much feels to people when we talk about this, like we are just pointing fingers, you know, you get all the reactions of, so I'm supposed to feel guilty for being white, or you're just, you know, shame reactions or denial and all this stuff. It really does trigger those same trauma reactions from people. So it's crazy to think if I already knew what largely what Mark was going to talk about and believe in it so much that I wanted to sit and get him to talk about those things so that we could share it with people. And it still caused me to feel that kind of massive trauma response. It, it does make sense as to why people who don't want to hear this and haven't asked to hear this when it's put on their plate by somebody else really just don't have the capacity to interact with it at all. Yeah, totally. Actually, the, f- the first thing I did wasn't 
wasn't vacuumed the car. I forgot. Uh, I jumped on my phone right after I finished uh, listening, and he mentioned something on on uh, when he was talking that I realized I really had no clue. I mean, I see like signs around of cities and rivers and regions, just assumed that they were indigenous Native American tribes or uh, or people groups. Um, so the first thing I did was like jump on and see, and there's maps, there's pretty cool maps you can see just where you're currently living right now, whose land that was, and that was the first piece. Mm-hmm. That was the first thing I did, um, which was kind of eye-opening as well, just to see how large the region was where the people that lived where I live now, um, how far their land went, um, Cause he said, we don't even, he said that line about like, we don't even know where the home we're now living in, whose land, whose home that used to be. And, uh, mm-hmm. so that was kind of the first piece, I guess, in my processing was like, let me figure, let me know that. I want to know that. I want to know whose ground, whose land this was. That was my first kind of step in processing. Yeah. I think about, you know, just reflecting on the visceral, emotional responses, you know, that the dealing with this truth this true history like brings up in us uh, taking a metaphor. Like I can't imagine how I would have felt if uh, someone called my phone or something and say Monique picks up and she's like, Hey, like someone called and wants to talk to you. <laughs> it's this guy named Mark Charles. And he's got like an hour long story. He wants to tell you, you know, like if it came unannounced and like <laughs> un- mm. unasked for like how much stronger my defensive mechanisms and all my denial tendencies, like all those trauma responses would have been because I was planning for this, wanted this willfully entered into this conversation and it it still triggered those things, you know? Yeah. And he says, I mean, he he goes around and talks at churches that how I heard of him was he was giving a talk. I think three churches in Portland um, invited him to kind of come and give a talk for all their people. And so these are churches that like want him to come. He's not just like randomly going around and trying to get people to talk. These are people inviting him to their place to talk to their people. And I think the response, I mean, he said it like he, he's had to understand that it's a, it's a response of a form of trauma um, that he is receiving from white uh, historically European people um, when he goes and speaks. So he almost is like, I kind of heard that as like how he has to encourage himself because of the response that he's going to be receiving to almost like tell himself, they're not actually mad at me. They're not actually necessarily even against what I'm saying. This is just a initial kind of like response uh, and denial is that first response. And I think we just see that we say that really strongly. So, I mean, you listen to this show because you know the gist of what we're going to talk about. We're going to be pushing back on how theology plays itself out in poor ways in life. And we want to talk about like the fruit of our theology and that that's important and better ways to think about the Bible. And, but this one is kind of a little bit of a a curveball, I would say. So you may not have been (laughs) expecting it and might not know, I think, what to do with it. I mean, it's just kind of like, we just kind of like dropped it. You know, we just kind of dropped this. Um, so we wanted to make sure we had an episode for us to talk through it, um, but also for you to kind of like process through that as well. Yeah. And I think especially as American Christians or even people who just share in in a American Christian heritage, even if you've you know walked away from Christianity, we have a responsibility to understand the role that our, for lack of a better term, religion, you know, or the ideas related to Christianity have played in the history of our society, right? And uh, and I think we have an even higher ethical responsibility because of how far-reaching the United States has been in terms of not only creating ideologies to justify what we did here to Native peoples and then bringing African people here, 
But then we basically exported those ideas and colonized much of the rest of the world for a good hundred years plus. Uh, and I think you can feel this, honestly, when you travel places. I remember when Monique and I were in Europe for a while doing a bike tour across Italy, France, and Spain. And uh, in France, uh, we're having bike troubles since we're stuck in the city. I was having to try to fix our bikes. And so I was waiting outside this shop and this random French guy, he spoke English, walked past me. He could just tell I was American. I don't know. He probably overheard me or whatever. And he just walked past me and he goes, you know what I love about America? The death penalty. And he's being totally sarcastic. And he was just reaming me basically for, for being a part of one of the few supposedly, you know, modern Western progressive countries yet still instituting the death penalty and how ironic that is that we claim we're a Christian country. And, and so it's just, there's this sense of like, yeah, I do kind of like, you know, when you're abroad somewhere, you represent kind of like a whole page or chapter or many chapters in world history, which is the role that America has played for better or for worse. And for many people, it's for worse uh, throughout history. So I just think anyway, as, as part of my own personal project, and I think part of what we have to take seriously as you know, having any sort of public discourse is acknowledging to the very best of our ability what is true about the past and what is, what is true about how that past is still shaping the present. Right. And especially when it comes to the history of the church. And I think that's part of just the basis of Mark's ideas. Right. It's why he focuses on the doctrine of discovery. That's not a, a secular political idea. That was a uniquely specific Christian idea. That's why it's called a doctrine. It was a doctrine of the church that white supremacy and manifest destiny and the, this whole American project uh, is built on top of. Yeah, but I think like the pushback would be, okay, that was bad. Like our theology was bad or people are using theology. It's like we talked about, uh, we've talked about before on this show, like I'm thinking episode nine, where we talk about, yeah, that was bad. Like, yeah, like that's the outlier. That's the exception. Don't judge it all based on that theology. We're doing better theology now. We figured, you know, we figured out some of these things and we're not making that same mistake again. People would say like, I've thought through my theology now and I'm, we're not oppressing other countries or whatever with good reformed doctrine now. So we need to like, we need to lament like what we did, but um, that was a different form of theology, not what we're doing now. And so what can we really do more than that? Yeah. And I think that's why Mark's most recent work is, has focused on demythologizing Abraham Lincoln is because that idea, you know, that we have a, an ugly, stain on our history, but we overcame it, is largely seen in the abolition of slavery. And Lincoln is seen as the great captain of abolishing slavery. And so basically we can say, okay, you're right. We used to enslave people, but we stopped doing that. Right. And so now we're on the, the right side of history. We have progressed. And so his whole point, and, and a lot of people have been making this point, And I think some people are listening and some people haven't been able to listen is to say that the abolitionists, even the the best and most you know stringent of the Christian abolitionists in history, were not undoing racism. You know, the irony is that white supremacy, the idea of whiteness, and and therefore the offset idea of non-whiteness, uh, was created in America to make slavery possible, to accomplish basically economic you know, hierarchy. But the irony is that we got rid of the slavery, but we kept 
the white supremacy and this idea of whiteness. Hmm. But so many people think that the abolitionists undid both, right? And so that we've been on this constant trajectory of getting away from our racist past. And so, so much of what Mark is doing is going kind of to the source of Abraham Lincoln, who, uh, A, like pointing out he wasn't really an abolitionist. He was just doing politics, right? Uh, he was willing to keep slavery if it ended the Civil War. But secondarily is, is to prove that and nowhere was he ever trying to combat white supremacy. He was responsible for one of the worst moments of genocide against Native peoples and reiterated over and over again uh, that black people were less human than, than white people. So, uh, and a lot of people, you know, Anthony Bradley's another guy I follow and others who have, who have showed that about Christian abolitionists who hated slavery and at least somewhat rightly saw slavery as a you know, stain on society and on the church especially, uh, but not because we had wrongly dehumanized people of color. Mm. It was just because, well, you shouldn't treat less than human people that badly. Wow. I didn't know that. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that for me is uh, the difficulty of acknowledging your, your national or societal history, right? It's like why you have Holocaust deniers that, that can't handle like their connections to Nazi Germany. And then there's the difficulty of our like ethnic, uh, deeper cultural history. But I just think like religious history, when you combine it all, right. And it's not just my, my nation and my, uh, my, my culture, my ethnicity, my, my people. Uh, but, but it's also my Christian faith, like all of those working together, uh, were responsible for great evils. Hmm. Um, that's why I just think the church has, has shown over and over again, like a real inability to acknowledge how bad church history is. And again, I just think that's this trauma response that I can totally identify with. It's almost like the, the narrative we, we need to be able to tell ourselves is, yeah, our national history was ugly, but we Christians are those who have inherited the heroes of that history. It was our ancestors, our Christian ancestors, who saved the society from being as bad as it would have been otherwise. Yeah. And that's like to to undo that version of history and to say, actually, it's our Christian ancestors who were the genius brainchilds who allowed for white supremacy to be created in the first place. That's like this whole other way of telling our story that I think a lot of us just don't have the capacity right now to even come to terms with. So what, like, what would that look like, I guess, now for us to not, to not continue doing that? Like, what does it look like if, if the church, like, understood this and realized what's going on? Like, what would, what would the proper response be, I guess, for anyone out there who's like, I want to respond correctly. Yeah. I want to respond in humility to this. Like, what, what is that? Yeah. I mean, I've been asking myself that question, right? Of like, what should my own posture be? Uh, what should my own journey, what work do I need to be doing? You know, the, that language, I think, uh, was popularized in the last couple of years, especially around white people trying to understand how to respond to the Black Lives Matter movement. I remember we used this language a lot in San Francisco of white people especially have their own work to do. 
you know, you've got your own homework to do and you can't constantly be leaning on people of color to lead you through that work or especially not to do that work for you. Yep. Um, so the guy who, who Mark Charles is writing his book with, uh, Truth Be Told, is Sung Chan Ra, whose last book, which I highly recommend, was basically a very simple premise. It's that the response is to lament. And to use more like modern psychological terms, the response is to actually allow yourself to grieve and to go through the grieving process rather than to jump into all of the various coping mechanisms that keep us out of that process because it hurts, it's painful, it's scary. And so his book, Prophetic Lament, is basically just that there is no moving forward before you actually allow yourself to adequately feel how horrendous this stuff is and to allow your mind, body, and soul to go through whatever emotional roller coaster of a process it is to to just sit and be honest with this stuff for a little while. And so one of the ways to describe what we need to be able to feel is lament. And of course he he basically goes on to say like the white church has systematically removed lament from what it means to be a Christian. And so we don't we don't sing the lament songs. Most all of popular worship music is happy, clappy, praise music that tries to tie a bow on the end of everything. You never end a sermon with bad news. You always have to have some sort of like hopeful response at the end of it. It really, in in large sense, evangelicalism, or at least white evangelicalism, has created a version of Christianity and specifically a liturgy of denial, where we basically deny all that is messed up and awful in this world because and this is Mark's point, right? Like it's where he brought up that ISIS is a trigger for American Christians <laughs> because deep down in our cultural corporate psyche, we know that our entire society and culture was built off of religious zealots seizing a land for themselves, using violence to do so. Right. So when we see people doing that overseas in the middle East, it like triggers this deep response. Mm. Basically, I think part of the idea is like we have had this deeply internalized trauma that has led us to create all of these ways of avoiding dealing with that truth. And so I think what Mark would say and Sung Chan Ran would say and others is like, we have to stop doing that. We have to stop avoiding it. We have to stop telling a false story of history, right? We have to stop denying the truth and just at least start with simply embracing the truth. But that's where I think of all the people that have been talking about racism, and there are a lot of great voices out there, I I really do think one of the pieces of Mark's wisdom that has been the most profound and potentially helpful to me is this idea of trauma and seeing the response of white America corporately as a kind of internalized societal perpetrator's trauma. Um, Because basically we can say we have to stop doing these things, right? We have to stop denying it, stop telling a false story of history, stop idolizing Abraham Lincoln. But then the question is how? And I think seeing those things that we need to stop doing as trauma mechanisms and trauma responses can then allow us to tap into some great research that's out there from psychology and sociology to actually get into, okay, how do you move beyond trauma responses and how do you go through healing and therapy essentially not just how do you argue with your cousins over the thanksgiving table you know hey brian do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist Uh, troy you know that i was because you and i have a podcast called i was a teenage fundamentalist i did know that but you know what i find myself asking these days 
No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, he works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think where I want to get to, and I think we're going to get there over these next um, few episodes as we have another guest on, um, and we kind of debrief from that as well, like, we're going to start talking about, like, how are we still doing this? How is this still happening today? How is the theology we still hold responsible for the mass incarceration numbers in the U.S. and our criminal justice system? Um, All these problems that we have, like, how is it still responsible? I want to get there, because I think that, combined with a deep, long season of lament can potentially help to start, like, really wake the church up to what's going on and and how we're still responsible and how we still have a large role to play in the state of America right now. You know, I think one of the common responses and probably one of the things that's, like, keeping us from having conversations about a lot of this stuff is you mentioned white supremacy you mentioned racist, you call someone a racist, and not that, like, maybe these aren't helpful things to say because they shut the whole conversation down, but it really does. It shuts the conversation down, and someone is so offended that they've been called, we've been called. We're not saying we're outside of this, by the way. Like, we are in the midst of all this, trying to figure this all out and process this and and not make the same mistakes again. We're right in the middle of this. We're not pointing fingers here. And to a large part, we were a part of... Uh, the problem for a while, not realizing that we were a part of the problem. So this is us we're talking about. It's not pointing the finger at other people, but I think that really does shut the conversation down when you when you say this theology is has racist roots or um, there's uh, a connection here between white supremacy and the way we vote and the way the policies we want to see in our country and like mass incarceration, all these things, like that really does shut the conversation down. Yeah, totally. You know, so I I think we're kind of having two conversations about the two projects that need to happen simultaneously, but often uh, don't get parsed out at all. The first one is like, what is the truth, right? What is the truth of the past and what is the truth of the present? And specifically, just to risk repeating ourselves, for us, the question is, what is the truth about our theology and specifically what role it is still playing or not in perpetuating some of the worst issues in our society, specifically racism, white supremacy. To reference that Willie Jenkins lecture that I had talked about a a while back called Can White People Be Saved? You know, he talked about how the tragedy of our history is that the story of the gospel has been merged with the false and tragic story of whiteness, and that for so many of us, it's been impossible to see what is Christianity and what is whiteness and where those two are overlapping and where they're not. And that that's basically our great undertaking. That's what we want to do. And at the same time, we're talking about this whole second project of how could we even handle what we find there, right? Like how could, if we found the truth, 
how would we even be able to acknowledge it, sit with it, listen to it? How would we be able to talk about it with people without the whole conversation shutting down, right? And and both of those conversations or both of those projects have to happen for anything to change. And I think so many of us have felt frustrated with that second one. And especially those who have gone through some sort of faith deconstruction, even if it's, you know, maybe separate from this conversation on race, how to engage with people who think differently, or especially how to engage with those who currently believe what we used to believe five years ago or 10 years ago is so difficult. And it feels for a lot of us like there's this chasm, right? And you just can't get across to other people. And so in what ways is not just American culture still perpetuating white supremacy, but in what ways is American theology still working as the foundation that holds up white supremacy? But then at the same time, we got to be working on how will we be able to actually handle seeing the truth if it were put in front of us, right? And like Jesus's words, like you have eyes, but you don't see and ears, but you don't hear. Pulling from Isaiah, it's this idea that I think tapping into, there's got to be a a capacity within us to actually want truth, to be able to handle truth. And especially when that truth pertains to us and our perceived in-group or tribe, telling the truth or hearing the truth and actually being able to like listen to that truth are, are very different things. Yeah, I think especially when it impacts or affects or requires some sort of change to your theology. I I do think there's a lot of people out there who would gladly make changes to their personal life or the way they think about the world, even if they were presented with a set of facts that they've been maybe believing that just weren't, weren't true. And even like a repentance there or changing that. But when you talk about changing your theology deeply held truths about the Christian faith or like how we interpret the Bible or things like that. Like, I think that is a whole different level for a lot of people, which that's what we do on the show. Um, We try to like walk through those things and and show like how historically maybe people have thought about things in in different ways than, than maybe what, what we have uh, previously. But like, I think that's like a whole different, a whole different level. And it's a whole different kind of like processing that needs to happen um, to even be able to get to a place where, you hold some of that with open hands Um, because even saying that sounds almost heretical (laughs) so tim like what do you think there's still threads of this wrapped up in our theology and in our beliefs about god and the way we interpret the bible and the way we structure our churches and that kind of stuff Yeah, again, that's a a question we want to answer for a long time, Uh, give it much more time than just this conversation. But, uh, I mean, one kind of, I don't know, example or snippet comes to mind at first, which is, you know, people like Michelle Alexander, who wrote uh, The New Jim Crow, and uh, people like Christina Cleveland and others have had to do a bunch of work lately to try to prove to society that we have not created this post-racist, equitable society, right? And so incarceration, numbers of black men, and that's kind of the thrust of the new Jim Crow, showing that from slavery era, you just moved to where you weren't enslaved, but it was essentially illegal for you to be free, and so you would end up in jail or go back to your enslaver because you had no other options. And then once we moved a little bit towards that, Basically, we just embedded the racism in more subtle and subtle means. So then you have segregation, mass amounts of white flight uh, on top of 
essentially decades where it was publicly acceptable and legal to lynch black people. And, uh, and now what we have is a system of mass incarceration and the whole war on drugs, which basically gave the federal government the kind of, you know, public justification for putting hundreds of thousands of black people in jail for minor offenses like carrying marijuana. So you can look at the numbers in terms of the number of people of color who are incarcerated, black people, Native Americans, and Latino people, compared to white people, it's completely inequitable. I think it's in Georgia still, you can be given the death penalty for crimes as as minor as a minor drug possession, like having marijuana on your possession. And it's something like the rate of likelihood that a white person is given the death penalty by a judge and jury for a minor drug possession offense versus the likelihood of a black person receiving the death penalty as the punishment for that very same crime. It's like 50 to one or something like that historically. So the same crime, same laws, but embedded in the system is these laws and our criminal justice system is a way to enact this racism out uh, in, in public policy. So again, so that's just a like super high flash summary and it's not not a great one to make the point that we still live in a racist society america is still racist we still have huge issues relating to equity relating to race okay so there's that case but not in the church right exactly so that's the response then is oh that's because of the ch- the church in a, and essentially like for evangelicals it's the white evangelical church like hasn't had enough say in society right like uh, that's despite the work of the church because the church has created this sort of colorblind society where all are welcome. And uh, again, it's like looking back at the, the slavery and abolition thing of saying like, yeah, you're right. Uh, slavery was bad, but at least the Christians abolished it and got rid of it and brought in this new great day, you know? So I think this, then the secondary work beyond saying you're, and getting people to acknowledge, okay, you're right. America is still a racist society, which I don't, I mean, the recent election, and you can look at numbers, like we have a long ways to go just on that, just getting people to grant that <laughs> we are not in a post-racist society. But then you make the secondary argument that it's actually evangelical theology and leadership within the evangelical church that over the last several decades has tied itself to conservative politics and the Republican Party that has tied basically the white church and the vote of the white church to Republican conservative politics, which have also been tied in large part to white race politics and show that actually it's the church itself that is undergirding uh, these ongoing issues. So first piece to me, and at least this is helpful in my brain in terms of organizing parts of this project. First piece is recognizing that we have an issue as a society, right? And we've had a a Christian-led society. Second piece is recognizing that the church isn't the hero in that society. It's been culpable in perpetuating some of those most grievous issues within the society. And therefore, it's worth looking at how complicit the church still is. But then the third piece is, I would say, uh, in that example, right, there's a wing of the church that's saying, you're right, American evangelicalism has been too widely connected with Republican politics and conservative culture. And we need to separate from that. 
We need to distance ourselves and not have any political ties with either party. But our theology is the solution. It's not our theology that got us in that trouble. It's our having political ties with, you know, with a particular party. So if we back out of those ties and we just do theology, we'll essentially be the heroes in this society. And that's where I go, no, 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 there's a, there's a fourth piece we got to do here is to realize our cultural ties, right, you know, to a, a political party and a wing of the church, those are woven together with ideas. And for Christians, for any religious people, you can even make the case for non-religious people, they are theological ideas. The, the core most things we believe about the world and what it means to be human and society and all that— that are weaving together those ties. And for the church, it has been theological ideas that have been used, again, either intentionally or unintentionally, to make those connections. And I think, at least as I see it, and I'm totally open to this being debated, to me, there there are some key leaders throughout history and some remaining today who have a lot of influence, who have intentionally woven Christianity with certain political ideologies and they've they've done it basically subtly and ingeniously most people sitting in pews on Sundays or not sitting in pews but watching Fox News Monday through Saturday it's unintentional for them but the the ideas have taken place nonetheless the ideas have been rooted they weren't sitting around going how can i create a theology that would allow me to maintain terrible ideas about people of color. But some of those ideas have been embedded anyway. And so there are a lot of people out there who don't want to be racist, who wouldn't identify as racist, who want issues like slavery to go away, and who would never guess that actually some of the ways they think about God, some of the ways they think about atonement, for instance, like we just recently had conversations about, some of the theological ideas embedded into how they do Christianity are actually some of the ideas that are most responsible for allowing all of these issues to continue. So to me, what I want to to say is you back it up. There are very clear connections between what people in the pews hear and believe about Christianity that end up leading to black men in America being incarcerated at rates far higher than white men. Most people don't think there is such a connection and they certainly couldn't figure out what that connection is, if possible. And I think the case we're wanting to make is say there is a connection, or at least there's a high likelihood there's a connection. And what that means is we certainly have a responsibility to figure out what that is. Yeah, yeah. I think this is good because I think there's a lot of people in the church that would look at like a, a Franklin Graham and say he's basically not doing Christian thought anymore. He's aligned himself with the Republican Party, and we need to do better politics, but not change our theology, just change where he's landing with that theology and what he's doing with it. Um, so I think this is going to be really good, I think, to, to talk through these things. Yeah. And so our point is basically like your politics stems from your theology. So that is a, a false distinction. Like if you're doing bad politics, you need to do better theology. And and to us, especially, you know, especially if you're a Christian leader like Franklin Graham, right? <laughs> or, you know, Jerry Falwell Jr., who's running a supposedly Christian institution, one of the biggest in the country, like you can't, you can't play that card that his theology doesn't have anything to do with his political ideologies, like starting a gun range at his Christian school. So to us, like, that's why this idea of like, 
Jesus' teaching that good fruit stems from a good tree and bad fruits comes from a bad tree and that we as Christians or just religious people have a responsibility to apply that lens, that filter to our ideas and our theological ideas. Uh, I think that's been one of the almost like banner items of the progressive wing of the church uh, because it's it's basically trying to get through to say like, hey, it actually matters how our ideas get played out, right? Like we have to take responsibility for how these things play out. And, and so that's what we talked about the analogy of a stream and getting upstream and getting to the, the like source of our ideas. So we probably don't have time to get into it here, but I, I really do think that atonement theology and the, the way we think about God and like recalling those conversations with Mako Nagasawa and Brian Zahn, the Puritan picture of God as this angry retributive, as Brian alluded to in his book, a, a traumatizing God who basically <laughs> abuses Jesus because of his character, which leads him to abuse the other who's not in the in group of essentially Christians. That view I think is one of, and the way it's been articulated, the way it's been um, narrativized for the, you know, everyday folk is, is one of the ideas at the heart of the political ideas that are so troubling in, in our culture. Yeah, so, okay, here's another example. And it's mixing issues and events, but I think it it serves as a good point. So, in the last few weeks, the Southern Baptist Convention has come under fire for what this guy, Paige Patterson, and and now a whole litany of other people in support of him and around him have said, uh, largely regarding women in domestic violence situations. And essentially you've got statements on record by multiple high up people in, and it's not just the Southern Baptist Convention, this stuff's everywhere, basically in complementarian church world that essentially equates to women, specifically wives, get abused by their husbands because they don't submit enough. And if they just submitted more to their husbands, then they wouldn't be abused. And therefore, what a woman is supposed to do when they are being abused by their husband is to submit even more. So rightly, people have found these quotes and are realizing how egregious this is and how uh, oppressive this is to women in situations of violence. Oppressive, not just like ideologically, theologically, like this gets people killed. And (laughs) there's basically just been this like runaround for a couple weeks now where you actually, what you have from some people, uh, people like John Piper, is a doubling down on the complementarian theology to say that the real problem, and this was an article that came out a few weeks ago, the real problem is that the culture has gone too egalitarian and that it's actually like this movement for women's rights and women's equality that has created all of these sexual violence issues and, and sexual assault issues that we've seen in Me Too and Church Too. And if we all just doubled down and got more complementarian, then these issues would go away. And there's this whole other world that's saying, like, listen, do you not see what your, your complementarian lens on things, your lens that says the way that God created the world was men were supposed to be in charge and women were supposed to submit. And then you get people like Bruce Ware and others who have 
interpreted the Trinity as Jesus is this being who's supposed to eternally submit to God. And therefore, because submission and hierarchy is woven into God himself, then how could you ever make a case for an egalitarian relationship, whatever? And so you basically have this world that wants to separate the fruit of, of that theology from the idea itself. And you have this whole other world that's saying, listen, over and over and over again, this is where these ideas lead. This constant reinforcement that men are supposed to be the leaders and women are supposed to submit to them leads to this kind of caricature of that view that tells women to stay in situations of abuse rather than call the police, rather than get help. And the the abuse is actually their fault in the first place. Yeah. And I think that doubling down of um, guys like Piper and Gospel Coalition and and that group on the complementarian way of, of interpreting certain passages of scripture and then thus building your worldview off of that. Like, I think that doubling down is the scariest part of all this because they're essentially saying the theology is not on the table for questioning, but like this theology is actually leading to that and perpetuating that. And so and I think the pushback is like, you know, that's a, again, that's, those are outliers. But when you bring up those outliers and the people double down on that theology, that's the problem. It's a spotlight on the problem right there. But even with just like all the stuff that Mark brought up and the season of lament we need to go into, I just really feel like putting our theology and the ability to put our theology on the table as something that might need to change, like the way we actually interpret the Bible. And like we've been pushing for this, like the fruit of our theology and actually thinking about how it impacts the world and does it bring good or does it bring bad into the world. We're going to need to put that theology and that interpretation on the table to be open to seeing it differently. Yeah. So, you know, we opened this conversation talking about how hard it can be to even acknowledge the truth of history because we largely exhibit trauma responses of denial and stuffing that truth. And then you bring in the other religious psychological factors, which we've talked about before, which is with really big ideas like atonement, where we've been told this certain view of things is the gospel. This is why you are saved or how you're saved. Then it's especially difficult to be willing to scrutinize that idea. But I think there's this this larger motivation as well within evangelicalism, which uh, goes back to a conversation we had about the, the risk of changing your mind on things is, uh, is this idea that theology is what saves us. Like theology is the hero here. It's what the world needs. I mean, I just got a letter from my seminary asking for money and the way they framed the giving request was we live in a country of heretics and our country, our society needs theology. Why? Because heresy hurts people. Bad theology hurts people. So we need to support the seminary because good theology is what will save us. So, you know, we all believe that we should be doing good theology, basically. But the the idea is, that, like, if, if you go to a school on this the premise, or you just live 20 years in a Christian world on the premise that that world's theology is going to be the hero to save you from the world, and then you encounter the idea that that theology actually might be laced with elements of what is poisoning the world in the first place, that's a really hard shift to go through, I think, emotionally, intellectually. That shift from seeing your theology as savior to your theology as something that needs to be redeemed, that's a big, a big turn. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, we got we to gotta wrap this one for now, but we're going to continue having these conversations over the next few episodes because we think this is 
super important. And we're not just going to like listen to one episode where Mark Charles tells us facts about our history and suddenly have a debrief episode and then be good to go and be healed from this. This is going to take a long time. It's going to be a, a long process. And there's a lot of work to do. And by work, some of that's like a lot of lament. And it's supposed to hurt. Like it's supposed to affect us. If there's like a defensiveness, like I think that's that's okay and totally like one of the first steps in realizing that there's a problem. But like I hope if you're feeling that, like you can you can continue to go on this journey past that initial defensiveness or like not wanting to hear that because it doesn't feel true or doesn't feel true to your experience. I hope we can go past that. Um, yeah, I think another way of saying that is. Uh is the project that we are committed to and feel like all American Christians have a responsibility to engage in this project of seeking deeper and deeper truth about our theological heritage and the present state of our theology is if Mark Charles is right, the very project and undertaking that will trigger our trauma reactions. And I think that's just an important piece that we're wrestling with individually together, even having these conversations with our families and friends like to talk about this stuff, to pursue truth, to pursue theological truth in, in this realm, based on the tragedy of American church history, means whether we're talking with people of color or talking with white people, we will be dealing oftentimes with trauma responses, and we need to understand essentially how, how painful and messy this work is going to be. Yep, totally. Thanks for hanging out with us this week and processing through some of this stuff with us. If you listen to the show and it's been helpful for you, we're super glad to have you along on this journey. And it'd be sweet if you could help us share this show with some other people, maybe share it with a friend. And also, we'd love to hear your experiences, your um, questions, any pushback or anything you have. You can email us, contact at almostheretical.com. Peace, y'all. See ya. titled self-dismay make us very clear that I don't want to run